I have a little daughter named Talitha. She's nine years old, and I have a dream for her that in four years, when she's 13, she will respond to my death the way Esther Staines responded at age 13 to her father's martyrdom. I don't know if you remember the story. Let me remind you in case you, you don't. Gladys and Graham Staines had served in India for 34 years, serving the, the leper community there. They had been faithful, they had been loving, they had been kind, and January 23rd, 1999, Graham and his two sons, Philip was 11 and Timothy was 6, got in their Jeep and went out to a camp to distribute literature and minister and slept in the Jeep during the night and a mob got around the Jeep and set it on fire and burned them alive. And when the fire ended and the people came in the morning, Graham, the dad, was on top of his two charred sons. The response of Gladys, the wife, was on the headlines of all the papers in India in the next days. She was asked how she felt and she said this, I have only one message for the people of India. I am not Neither am I angry, but I have one great desire, that each citizen of this country should establish a personal relationship with Christ who gave his life for their sins. Let us burn hatred and spread the flame of Christ's love. And then they asked her whether she was going to go home and she said this, my husband and our children have sacrificed their lives for this nation. India is my home. I hope to be here and continue to serve the needy the rest of my life. And then the most amazing thing happened. They approached this 13-year-old girl, the sister who was left, her two brothers and her daddy, had been burned to death, and they said, how do you feel about the murder of your father? And she spoke these words. I praise the Lord that he found my father worthy to die for him. So there's my picture from my little Talitha in four years, no matter how it ends. I praise the Lord that he found my father worthy to die for him. Now, there's several remarkable things about that sentence. One is that it's almost a quote from Acts 5.41, right? You remember the words? The apostles had been captured. They had been beaten. And when they were released after being beaten, Luke writes, they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to bear shame for the name of Christ. So she's quoting scripture. She's a, she's a Bible-saturated 13-year-old girl. Another amazing thing about that sentence is that it signals 
My daddy didn't die in vain. His life and his death was not wasted. In fact, it goes beyond that and says God had a design in this. I don't know how else to explain the words from the Bible or from Esther anyway than to say God had a design in this. God was ruling over that jeep and over that mob because what else does it mean when she says God counted my father worthy to die? That's a very dangerous statement. We're going to have to think about that. I'm going to argue that life is not wasted because there's a sovereign God ruling every detail of our lives. Two years later, this is 2002 now, November 21, the country this time is not India, it's Lebanon, the city is Sidon, and the young couple are Gary and Bonnie Witherall. She's 31 years old. She's there working in a maternity clinic, loving the people. In Jesus' name, a, a knock on the door comes. She opens the door, three bullets to her head, and she's dead for serving Jesus in Lebanon. And at her memorial service, her husband, Gary, there's a picture of them there that you can't see, God led us to Lebanon, he said, and we knew we might die. I forgive them, but there are tears in my eyes. At a memorial service for his wife, he said, quote, so many people think my wife's death was a waste, but we believe that coming here with the message of Jesus would never be a waste. It is a message worth laying down our lives for. So there's another statement. This is not a waste. There's no wasted suffering and there's no wasted service. God is reigning and God is designing and God is making life meaningful and he's making death meaningful and nothing is being wasted under God's sovereign hand. And then I read in an article by Steve Saint a statement that I could hardly believe anybody would write, though I totally agree with it, but hardly ever hear anybody say it or anybody write it because we're so cowardly in our day to speak about the sovereignty of God, whether it's on Larry King or with a school classmate. We just run the other way. Well, I don't know. He may reign or he may not. Steve Saint is the son of Nate Saint. That might ring a bell. I don't know. I was 10 years old when this happened, the event Steve is talking about. His father, Nate, went with Peter Fleming, Ed McCulley, Roger Udarian, and Jim Elliott to Ecuador on a little plane. They landed on a river um, beach to bring the Warani, the gospel no Westerners had ever contacted this tribe, let alone with the gospel. And all five of them were speared 
to death on the beach. One of the most amazing things about that is that they had guns. I didn't know that until recently. And they were shooting, bang, bang, in the air to scare them away, but they wouldn't shoot them. Instead, they took the spears, and they all died. And here's this little six-year-old boy, Saint now, Steve Saint, writing about this event in this article I have here. Did they have to die? And on the third or fourth page comes this sentence. I read it over and over again, and then I got in touch with Steve Saint to see, did you mean to say that? Or is this a misprint? And when I found out he really meant to say it, I invited him to a conference. So here's what he wrote. He did extensive research, because of course you know now the, the Warani are pervasively Christian and a church is established and their blood was not shed in vain and nothing was wasted. Nothing. And a little boy now writing, I think about age 50 or so, said this, as they described their recollections, the people in the situation who remembered the situation, it occurred to me how incredibly unlikely it was that the Palm Beach killing, that was the name of the beach on the river in Ecuador, the Palm Beach killing took place at all. It was an anomaly. I mean, something inexplicable and strange. It was an anomaly that I cannot explain outside of divine intervention. I thought, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Didn't you mean to say, my father died because of the absence of divine intervention? Is that what you meant to say? Is that what everybody believes? Is that the way we talk? If God had intervened, if God had been there, this wouldn't have happened. And I got in touch with him. I said, do you mean to say that? Did you mean to say it was anomaly? I couldn't explain it. It wouldn't have taken place. I cannot explain it except for outside of divine intervention, which means God arranged it. God arranged it. So Esther and Bonnie and Steve, nothing, no service and no suffering and no pain is wasted because God rules and designs everything. Now, Job, we got to go to the Bible. It's one for me to tell missionary stories. That's nice. That has no authority whatsoever. I'm not the authority here. They're not the authority here. The Bible is the authority. We need to underline the experience of these missionaries with some Old Testament and New Testament biblical teaching. So here's a couple of illustrations. You know the story of Job. Let me just rehearse it with the key interpreting sentences for you. Satan comes to God and says, um, Job serves you because all goes well for him. That's all he does. He serves you because God goes, things go well for him. So God says, all right, you can have him. 
and test him, but just don't touch his body. So Satan goes out, and the next thing we read is that his camels are all killed, and his cattle is all killed, and eventually all ten children die in a house that collapses because of a strong wind. And the news comes to Job, your children are all dead. All of them, not just two out of three. All of them are dead. There's no Esther left. And it says, he tore his robe, he threw dust on his head, he fell to the ground, and he worshiped and said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Don't miss that. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I wonder if people know what they are singing with that Matt Redmond song. Do you know what you are saying? Do you believe that? It's funny how we can say things in songs but when it comes to controversy in interviews and discussions, we retreat from the very truth that we've been celebrating and the Bible so clearly teaches, the Lord gave me my children and the Lord behind Satan took them and did me no wrong. And the author of the book, lest we think that Job misspoke, adds verse 22 of chapter 1, Thus he did not sin with his lips. And then Satan comes back to God and says, yes, yeah, skin for skin. Of course he still serves you. You won't let me touch his body. And God says, you can touch his body now. Just don't kill him. And he goes out and he afflicts him from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet with boils that he scrapes because there's worms in them, it says later in the chapter, and he wants to get them out, and he scrapes himself with broken shards. And his wife says, just curse God and die. And Job responds, shall we receive good at the hand of the Lord and not receive evil? And then you get to the end of the book, chapter 42, verse 11, and his brothers and sisters gather around him, and the writer says, they comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Not Satan. Satan does not get the honor of sovereignty in this world. He's a lackey. He does not have preeminence. God rules over Satan and disease and winds blowing out of the east. You know the story of Joseph. I think of Joseph here because you're all in his category. He was 17. Some of you are younger than that. A few of you are older than that. Joseph in the Old Testament, he's 17 years old. His brothers can't stand him because he had a dream that he was going to be their ruler someday. So they rip off his coat, cover it with animal blood, send it to his dad, say he's dead, throw him in a pit. He thinks he's going to die in the pit. They draw him up out of the pit. He thinks, oh, good, they've changed their mind. He's, they sell him into slavery. He goes down into Egypt. He's 17 years old. 
He gets sold to Potiphar. Things start to go better for him. Then Potiphar's wife lies about him because he won't have sex with her. He gets thrown into prison. He lies there. The baker and the butler come. He tells their dreams. The baker is hanged. The butler goes back, forgets him for two more years. Now, 13 years have gone by, and the butler remembers. Oh, yeah, there's this guy in the, in the prison and he told me my dream. So Pharaoh, maybe he can tell you yours. He did tell Pharaoh his dream. He's made the vice president of Egypt for seven years. He accumulates food, and when 20 years have gone by of never seeing his family, they come, and they're about to starve, and he saves their lives, and suddenly sees what 20 years were about. And the verse 20 of chapter 50 interprets the whole story and your life of suffering, which is coming because the Bible says through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. Every one of you will suffer. It says, Joseph speaking to his brothers, you meant it for evil but God meant it for good. It does not say God used it for good. Some people weasel at this point. It says with the same word applied to the design of evil, a design for good. In and through the evil of those brothers, God sovereignly is working, saving, rescuing. Now, I was I want to ask you just by way of preliminary application, if you're 17 or 13 or 12 or 23 and you're on the front end of your 13-year downward spiral of frustration and misunderstanding, are you going to survive? Are you going to be like Joseph who kept holding to his God and he must have wondered why in the pit, why sold to slavery, why lied about by Potiphar's wife, why in the prison, why forgotten, why, why, why? But he held on to his God and in 20 years he found out why. You may not know why your parents are suffering like they are or you are suffering like you are or somebody died last week or some terrible news came to your family this week. You may not have a clue and it may be 20 years out or 30 or 40, but will you be like Joseph who lets none of his suffering be wasted. Oh, what a waste it would have been if halfway through this downward painful struggle he would have said, I've had it with God. If this is what it means to follow him, I'm done. I'm gone. What a waste. But holding on for 20 years, he saved Israel. God reigns. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father? Not a bird falls from the sky apart from God, Matthew 10, 29. Who then is this that even the wind and the waves obey him, Mark 4, 41. The lot is cast in the lap, and every decision is from the Lord, translated into modern language. The dice are rolled on the table, and every top side is governed by God. 
Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Amos 3, 6. Ephesians 1, 11. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And on and on the texts go. God lets no suffering be wasted, no service be wasted, no pain be wasted, no life be wasted, because he rules over the one who would make it a waste, namely Satan and he rules over disaster, and he rules over disease, and he rules over all the disgrace that will come upon you if you stand strong for him. And it's precisely because of that rule that we can have absolute confidence. Our God never lets a life for him be wasted. So here's the key question. Is the design of God in my suffering good? Is it good? Can God work through sin? Can God work through disease? Can God work through tsunamis in order to do good for those who hold fast to him? And the answer to that question is so crystal clear in the Bible, and it's crystal clear in the place where God reveals himself most clearly, namely at the cross of Jesus Christ. And here's the verse I'm thinking about. Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28, you may remember the situation. The saints, after the resurrection, gathered praying. They're praying. And listen to how they pray. In this city, O oh God, there were gathered together against your anointed servant, Jesus Christ, Herod, and Pontius Pilate, and the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel, to do what your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What was that? Herod put the robe on him and mocked him and said, do a miracle. I've always wanted to see a miracle. Pilate in his groveling obediency and cowardice capitulated to the crowds and had him scourged and given up to crucifixion. The Gentiles' soldiers put the crown on his head and smacked him and pulled on his beard and spit in his face and hit him with rods and lashed his back and drove the nails and shoved the spear. And the crowds, the Jewish crowds, crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. All of that predestined by God, Acts 4, 27 and 28. If you don't have a category in your teenage brain for God's ability to ordain sin without being a sinner, you can't understand the cross of Christ. You're just going to say, well, it slipped up on him. The death of his son in all those ways just slipped up on him. And you know that's not true because it's scripted in the Old Testament. Just read Psalm 22. 
Detail after detail after detail, hundreds of years before it happened, is written down. This will happen. God has designed the death of his son at the hands of sinful men. There had to be sin for Christ to be dead. There is no greater sin in all the universe than the murder of the Son of God. And therefore, we must get into our brains a category. Our sovereign God ordains all things without being a sinner or in any way unholy. Our God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all, even though He wills that there be darkness on Calvary's mount. No, this is so mighty for you. If you could feel the force of this, what an amazing thing it is. Now here's the next question. If it is true that God reigns over our suffering and nothing is wasted because of his mighty hand, and if it is true that in that rule and reign and governance there is a good purpose the greatest sin that ever was, the murder of the Son of God, was for your salvation. The greatest sin happened for your salvation. God ordained the worst evil for the greatest glory. If that's true, what is God's goal? What's the good that He's doing in our lives and in the world and the Bible gives a really clear answer to that. God's purpose in your life, Christ's life, Dallas' life, all things, all history, all reality, everywhere in the universe, God's purpose is to display His glory for the enjoyment of His redeemed people at the price of His Son's life. His purpose is to display His glory. Two texts, Isaiah 43, 7. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone whom I created for my glory. That's why you exist. You were made for the glory of God. That means you were made to make Him look good. You were made to shine with His excellencies. You were made to so talk and so live and so do schoolwork and so do relationships and so to be a submissive child to your parents so that people look at you and say, God is valuable, God is worthy, God is beautiful, God's a treasure to that person. That's why you're on planet Earth. And not only were you created for that end, but you were redeemed for that end. Listen to this word from Ephesians 1. God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us according to the purpose of His will through Jesus Christ unto the praise of the glory of His grace. That's a long sentence, and it's only part of it. Paul is saying, you were chosen, you were adopted, you were predestined, you were redeemed for a purpose. And the purpose is unto the praise of His glory, which means God gets glory 
from his work, and that's his design, which creates for us a huge problem. I run into it over and over again. I read about it in the London Times. I get emails about it. It was in the life of C.S. Lewis, one of my mentors who died in 1963. And the obstacle, the question, the problem is this. If God created us for his glory, if he predestined us and chose us and redeemed us and adopted us that we might praise him, then God's a megalomaniac. God's on an ego trip. Praise me, praise me, praise me, is what you read all over the Bible, which is why C.S. Lewis says he couldn't come to Jesus for a long time because it sounded, to use his words, like an old woman who needed compliments. It's the same thing I read in the London Times. People, when they begin to get into the warp and woof of the Bible, find this God is really into God. This God is very self-exalting. This God is passionate for his own glory. This God is central in his affections, and they're absolutely right. And so the question is, if we're going to live a life utterly yielded to this supreme, sovereign, good purpose of God to let His excellency shine off of our treasuring Him above all things. Where is love? Does God love me? So let me use a couple of texts to try to pull this together. The first one is John chapter 11, and I'm assuming it's so dark you can't read your Bible, and so I won't ask you to turn there, but just listen to me as I read it to you. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him saying, Lord, he whom you love, now mark that word, Jesus loves Lazarus. He whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. Now we have both love and glory. Those are the two things I'm after. I want to know why a God who exalts himself continually in everything he does and calls me to do the same is a loving God. And now I've got love and glory in this text. I'm going to get help here. Listen carefully. This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God, that's me, Jesus says, may be glorified in it. So God's going to get glory. I'm going to get glory. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So now we've seen it twice. He loves Lazarus. He loves Martha. He loves Mary. 
And then you get the most amazing conjunction in the Bible. Verse 6. Therefore, therefore, when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer where he was and let him die. Now that's a very strange therefore. Let me read it to you again. Verse 5. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loved them. He loved them. Therefore, he stayed two days longer where he was and let him die. How do you make sense out of that therefore? And here's the way you make sense out of it. Love, being loved by God does not mean that he makes us central, but that he makes himself central for our enjoyment. Do you feel more loved that God would make much of you or that he would enable you to enjoy making much of him forever? This text says, Love is God's doing what he must do at great cost to himself and sometimes to us. Whatever he must do to enthrall us, thrill us with what will make us eternally and fully satisfying, namely himself. Therefore, he said, this, this sickness is not unto death I'm going to go down there and raise the dead and display my glory. And when you see my glory, you will see the one thing that will satisfy your souls forever. So even though it's going to cost you the death of your brother, this is love. Love in the Bible is spreading a path for God to all people for their joy. Love is not making people feel good about themselves. It is making people feel thrilled with God, satisfied with God. And there's the explanation for how it is that a God who constantly lifts up himself is a loving God. Because the one thing that will satisfy our souls forever is him, not us. Heaven is not a hall of mirrors. Though we've been taught for 30 years now that that is salvation. Just get kids to like themselves. Just help them to like what they see in the mirror and they'll study better and they'll play sports better and they'll treat each other nice. What a cheap substitute for what Christ died to achieve, namely to display the glory of God that they are satisfied not in themselves but in God. The great experience of life is not to look in the mirror and like what you see, but to, to be so enamored, so thrilled, so satisfied with Jesus Christ crucified and risen that we forget about these selves of ours and are totally drawn into Christ. Let me give you one more passage of Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 to illustrate again 
that love is the exaltation of Christ. Christ's love for me is doing what he must do to keep me exulting in him and not myself. So here's the situation. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul has had extraordinary revelations in heaven. And then God gives him a thorn in the flesh to keep him from being boastful with his revelations of Christ. I'll read it now, verse 7. Because of the surpassing, for this reason, to keep me, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. Jesus is not the thorn in the flesh, he's the sustaining grace. He's given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Now picture yourself. You've been given a thorn in the flesh after a great experience with God. God has seen to it that you have this thorn so that you won't boast in those experiences in yourself, but will boast in him. And you cry out to him three times, oh God, take it away, it hurts. Oh God, take it away, it hurts. Oh God, please, in Jesus' name, take it away. And God says every time, no, no, no. And then the Lord comes to you and he says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. And I can hear a typical American self-saturated teenager say, I don't care about your grace and your power. This hurts. Get off of me. That's what I can imagine millions of teenagers saying, and I pray not you. Not you. That when the thorn is given you, and the thorn could be a person, the thorn could be your complexion, the thorn could be your size, the, cor the thorn could be your height, the thorn could be a disability, the thorn could be a divorce in the family, the thorn could be your brother with leukemia, the thorn could be anything that would tempt you to say, I'm out of here. If that's the way Christ treats his loved ones, I'm gone. And you don't know the Bible. You don't know what it's all about. And here's what it's about. The whole point of that experience was, Paul, I love you. I love you so much. I'm going to give you a thorn in the flesh so that you will not begin to boast in yourself and be enamored by what you see in the mirror because you had revelations. I'm going to give you this thorn so that you're cast upon me and cast upon me and cast upon me because I'm your only hope and your only satisfaction. That's how God can be self centered and loving because he's the only way forward. He's the only way. Now let me close with this word. I pray that God will give you a response like this. Since nothing in life is wasted, in the service of Christ. No pain is wasted. No service is wasted. No suffering is wasted because of our sovereign God. 
who has this good purpose, which is to display his glory through you. Therefore, the first thing I call you to do is submit to God's sovereign will. Submit to God's sovereignty. Just order your life under a massive God. You don't have to have all the questions answered. Many mysteries. You'll come to your grave in 10, 20, 30, 50 years with a lot of questions unanswered. So that's the first. Submit to God's sovereign rule in your life. Number two, repent of the arrogance and self-exaltation of presuming that you can run your life and frustrate the purposes of God. You can't. Listen to James chapter 4, 13. Come now, you who say today and tomorrow, we will go up to such and such a town, spend a year there, trade and get gain. You do not know about your life. It is like a vapor that appears for a little while and then is gone. Rather, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. That's a devastating text because what it says is, if you just say, I'm going home after this conference, and then I'll go to school this fall, and then I'll take a vacation to the beach, instead of saying, if not out loud, with a deep, tender, broken, humble, submissive heart, if the sovereign God wills, I will stay alive and do this or that. If you don't say that, the Bible says you're arrogant. And that's why my second plea is repent of your pride, your self-sufficiency, your self-determination, your self-exaltation. Just repent and say, Lord, I have, I have missed this. I really missed it, and I'm sorry. And the third thing I would summon you to do is fly to Jesus Christ for all the sin and all the failure and all the arrogance. There's only one hope for a sinner like me and you. Christ died for my sins. Christ rose again. Christ accomplished a righteousness. When I just hold to him, lean on him, rest in him, he clothes me with his righteousness and he forgives all my sins. That's my only hope for a way forward. And then the fourth thing is embrace his sovereign purpose to display his glory in your life. Get up in the morning and think, okay, why am I on planet Earth? I am on planet Earth to so live, to so do my job, so do my schoolwork, so relate to my family, so relate to my friends, so handle pornography or food or drugs, to so handle everything and so live such that I show the value of Christ. I must make Christ my treasure because when people see him treasured by me, they will see his worth and his glory and his value and that's why I live. That's the unwasted life. A life with Christ above, Christ in the middle, Christ beneath, doing everything to magnify the infinite worth of Jesus. And one last exhortation. The way you show Christ to be valuable is by delighting in him, 
being satisfied in him above all things. Digging into the Bible to see him and his magnificent ways. Falling in love with his beauty and his righteousness and his justice and his truth and his wisdom and his grace and his love and his sovereignty and his holiness and his power. All these glorious things about God and his son, they become your treasure, not your favorite music group not your favorite friends, not your family, not your church, but Christ. And when that happens, when your heart is satisfied in Christ, he is magnified in your life and you have accomplished that for which you were made and your life is unwasted. He gets all the glory and you get all the joy and it's the best of all possible arrangements. So, Father, as I leave these young people now, my heart's prayer, my desire, my longing is that you would in this conference do such a massive work of awakening. I pray for unbelieving young people who walked into this conference not with Jesus as Savior or Jesus as Lord or Jesus as treasure, but just indifferent now you're coming in music and you're coming in word and you're going to come in conversations and I pray that you would come with saving power. And then for the believers, Lord, I pray that there would be a quickening and awakening to the majesty and the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ such that he assumes a place in their life of highest treasure, highest prize, highest satisfaction and that the miracle of that kind of transformation would happen and then I pray that the spillover Lord would be lives of radical love and radical obedience and radical missions. I pray that hundreds, maybe thousands from this conference would find themselves vocationally in mission serving the least reached peoples of the world someday and that Satan would take a blow because of the faith and the humility and the love and the treasuring of Christ that rises up in the hearts of these young people. Lord, come, I pray, and do this mighty work in your Son's name. Amen.